In the 1990s, the U.S. had one of the highest female labor force participation rates. And in fairly recent work, Larry and I showed that the U.S. progressively lost its position. And now among economically advanced countries, we have one of the lower rates. And essentially, our work suggests that uh, work-family policy plays a role in this. Welcome to The Work Goes On, a podcast from the Industrial Relations section at Princeton University. I'm your host, Orly Ashenfelder, the Joseph Douglas Green 1895 Professor of Economics at Princeton University. In this podcast series of conversations with leading thinkers and practitioners, we are creating an oral history of an entire generation of industrial relations experts and labor economists whose contributions to their fields have been absolutely extraordinary. Our guests today are Francine Blau and Lawrence Kahn, both professors of economics at Cornell University. Blau is also Francis Perkins Professor of Industrial and Labor Relations, and Kahn is Brownstein Family Professor of Industrial and Labor Relations, both at Cornell also. They're renowned for their work in labor economics, and especially for their study of issues related to gender and race in labor markets. Fran and Larry, welcome to The Work Goes On. Thank you, Orly. It's great to be here. Thank you very much. Well, we're so pleased to have you. Let's begin the discussion by talking about your background. Fran, let me start with you. Where did you grow up? Well, I grew up in the New York City area, first uh, in Manhattan and then in Queens. Forest Hills. Yeah, Forest Hills, Queens. Yeah, I went to Forest Hills High School. Now, I know you ended up at Cornell. How did that happen? Well, that's an interesting question. As an economist, I like to feel everything's rational, full information, and planned. But what happened to me was, at the time I was growing up, um, most of my friends were going to Queens College. And the really adventurous ones were going to City College in Manhattan. And I got this idea that I wanted to go to a, quote, away school, and there wasn't very much money. So it came to my attention that Cornell had state schools with much lower tuitions as well as private schools. (laughs) So I looked at the state schools and I thought from New York City, agriculture was not going to cut it. (laughs) And um, there was... uh, uh, home economics, and that did not fit my self-image. And so there was this thing called industrial and labor relations, and I thought it sounded interesting, and I researched it, and I applied to it. And I guess you got in. Yes, uh, but actually I was on the waiting list, interestingly. And now you teach there. That's correct. The Francis Perkins professor. Well, that was another thing. You see, in my day, industrial and labor relations was a male field, but I learned about Francis Perkins, who uh, was Secretary of Labor and at that time actually on the Cornell uh, ILR faculty, and that inspired me to apply. Now, I know you went from there to Harvard. How did that happen? I got interested in economics, and I have to say uh, that, again, at that time, it was a Even ILR, Industrial and Labor Relations, was a primarily male field. At Cornell, there was a quota on women, not to get enough women, but so as not to get too many. And there was 15 out of 100. But my econ professors were very encouraging. So I got the idea to apply to grad school. 
And I applied, uh, actually was quite successful in, in getting in, except Orly to uh, Princeton. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm where, sure to hear that. <laughs> yes, where, where I received a letter back that they were not accepting women uh, at in grad school at the time. Oh, what, what year did you start graduate school? 66. Yeah, they had a few women here then, but as you know, there were no undergraduates, unlike Cornell, and and sixty six, and the, it was a quota at Princeton on the graduate students. And frankly, uh, you, a chair of the department would have to fight to get you in. And typically, the biologists were better fighters. <laughs> <laughs> right. Actually, literally, what they said is they would not admit a woman to Princeton unless there was something she needed to study there that she couldn't study mm-hmm. elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And that's interesting. Well, that's definitely a sign of the times. So you went to Harvard, and I know that you worked with Dick Freeman there. I did. I also worked with uh, Peter Doringer. So uh, Doringer was my main advisor, and Freeman was on my committee. And now tell me, I know that you ended up at, at, and we want to get to this at some point, at Illinois, but it took a little bit before your first job there. That's correct. Um, I actually... um, did not find Harvard a very hospitable place and, and left uh, pretty quickly. And while I was working on my dissertation, I was teaching at Trinity College. And then my first job was actually at the Center for Human Resource Research at Ohio State, which uh, produces the NLS data sets. Interesting. And I guess Herb Parnes was probably there at that time. He was. It was really his operation, and and I don't think he gets enough credit. The whole thing was, I think, his brainchild. Let's turn to you, Larry. Where did you grow up? Uh, Well, I was born in South Carolina, and then uh, my father got transferred to New York when I was seven, and so we moved to Scarsdale, New York, where I uh, went to high school. And from there, went to University of Michigan as an undergrad. How did that? How did that happen? Scar. My wife went to Scarsdale High School. Actually, she thought it was a fabulous school. I guess it was. Um, I thought it was really good. I had a very good time. I applied to a variety of places. Uh, Michigan had so many options. It you know it has a great faculty, but it had so so many different majors you could select, and I was really um, impressed with that. And that's that's why I chose Michigan because whatever I ended up being interested in, I knew that there would be a lot of opportunities. So, what did you study. do as an undergraduate? What uh, well, I was a math major. That's my degree. My undergraduate degree is in math, and when I was a junior, so it was like 1969, and at that time at Michigan, the vibe around campus was that with the mass unemployment that we were experiencing. 3.5%, and the hyperinflation that we were experiencing, about 3%, that the economy was about to collapse. And so I thought, maybe I should learn some economics, because this doesn't sound right. So I, ta- I took a class taught by one of your earlier guests, Frank Stafford, which was um, Introduction to Macro and Micro in one semester. And it just clicked with me. I loved it. And um Took a lot of economics, uh, although I did my degree wasn't econ- was not in economics; it was in math. And then I decided to apply to grad school in uh, in economics and uh, chose Berkeley to go to grad school. And why was that? Um, they were a very good department. They and they also had a lot of options. They had 
uh, labor economics with Lloyd Allman. They had uh, some some top theorists, top econometricians. So again, I chose it because of the the options that I would have there. I know. I I remember meeting you actually when you were on the job market from Berkeley. Uh, as I recall, who, who was on your committee? Uh, Lloyd Allman, uh, Dan McFadden, and Tom Rothenberg. That's quite a combination. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I actually ended up talking to Tom Rothenberg, I think, the most. Um, he's an econometrician and also a really good economist. Uh, was your first job at University of Illinois? My first job was the University of Illinois, correct. Fran, did you join the University of Illinois at the same time as Larry? I joined at the same time and uh, possibly in the same job. It was uh, <laughs> it was uh, a relatively prosperous time. They wanted to hire a junior labor person. Uh, we both rose to the top of the list, and according to our colleague Wally Hendricks, they said, "Well, the probability of them both coming is small enough. Why don't we make them both offers?" <laughs> so you didn't know each other at that time, though. No. Right. That's right. You didn't. You didn't know you were competitors, I guess, until later. No, and uh, I remember meeting actually um, the wife of a faculty member at one point, and she was asking me about myself, and she said she got me confused with Larry because it all sounded so similar. <laughs> My first year, labor economics, etc. I think some people will be interested in this because it, this is an example where you solved the two-body problem, but you didn't have to do anything. <laughs> Larry always used to say we had good planning. We planned to meet on our first job. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty good. When did you start working together? Well, we each wrote a number of papers and Fran wrote a book um, in our first two or three years at Illinois. And then we became, we were both interested in inequality in the labor market. And so in the late 70s, we wrote a couple of papers on um, gender and labor turnover. That was a... Uh kind of historic work, so uh, especially to be doing it so early. And when did you get married? Well, uh, we got married in 1979. So we started in Illinois in 75. Gave it some thought. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I know you were married in, in Scarsdale. Uh, do you remember who married you? Um, yes, it was a judge named uh, Miriam Cedarbaum. <laughs> it's funny because I I happened to see your, I don't know why, in the New York Times, they had a write-up of your getting married. And Miriam Cedarbaum became a federal judge and appointed by Ronald Reagan in the Southern District of, of New York, quite a famous judge. And actually, I taught some courses to federal judges, uh, and she was in a couple of them. So I actually, I knew her. I knew the person who married you. Of course, she by this time, she had moved on. From, from being a, a local judge, I would like to have us discuss your work on gender. I mean, I think that's uh, famous uh, amongst, there are many, many aspects to that. So I'm not quite sure how we want to tackle it. But before we do that, Larry, I know you have another area that you work in that probably is not as interesting for Fran, uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm guessing, and that's uh, economics of sports. Right. Um, well, that started one day in the mid-80s, I was reading the newspaper. We didn't have a lot of data around, but the newspaper published the salaries of every NBA player that year. And I'd always been a sports fan. I played sports. And I thought, gee, I wonder I wonder if, if there are black-white pay differentials in the NBA, because everybody talked about 
quotas. You can't have too many black players on the court at the same time because it would upset the fans. And so a co-author and I coded up the data and we wrote a paper where we found that uh, even though black and white players earned about the same salary, once you controlled for performance, there was a statistically significant black salary shortfall to the tune of about 20%. Um, and, And then we also found that fans preferred to see white players all else equal, which is where we think the pay differential came from in the first place. So that started my interest in uh, in the economics of sports. Can I just interrupt for a second and say of something course. that Larry Absol- won't, won't say? He has an absolutely encyclopedic knowledge of sports, <laughs> multiple sports, <laughs> to the point when before the internet got so big, people would come to Larry <laughs> to resolve factual questions. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I can see how his interest was piqued by the fact that he saw all these salaries uh, published out there. Uh, so suddenly you, there's data that you wouldn't normally have. Well, that's, that's fair. We can come back to this, but I think uh, there, there's always some interest, especially these days in the economics of sports because of, uh, well, actually at Princeton in particular, of course, because our basketball team managed to go through a couple of rounds at the uh, March Madness, which is not typical for a, uh, a university like Princeton. Uh but we can move on from that, I think, because you got, I think your, your early work was on gender, wasn't it? Uh, uh, and you even have a textbook, which is really gender related. Isn't that right, Fran? That's that's right. Actually, my dissertation was, was on the gender pay gap, uh, which is something I have continued to study a great deal. And uh, the Economics of Women, Men, and Work, my textbook, is currently in its ninth edition. It was originally with Mary Ann Ferber, a close colleague at Illinois, and we brought in Ann Winkler, and now uh, 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 Mary Ann has died, but Ann and I continue. Oh, that's fascinating. And I had forgotten that Mary Ann Ferber was at Illinois, so of course you knew her from there. Right. That's great. You have done a lot of work, both of you, over the years on gender issues. Uh, I I think it might be nice if, if we could try to summarize that a little bit. So let, let me ask you, Fran, first of all, what, what do you think is the main thing, uh, let's say three things, uh, that you feel that you and Larry have learned from a lot of your work? Let me just sort of say, um, to begin with, um, a question I thought you might ask and haven't asked yet, uh, why we work together. <laughs> we we, we oh. really... <laughs> <laughs> well, that's okay. Good question. Why do you, why do you work together? We really enjoy working together, but there's an interesting uh, thought to that. Now, Larry mentioned our early work on turnover, uh, which I do, I'll have to think a little whether it's going to make my three, but I do think it's uh, important. And that was in the early 80s, and we greatly enjoyed it, but we did make the strategic decision not to work together so much until we were both um, firmly established. We didn't want anyone to be viewed as mm-hmm. the and, as it were. Mm-hmm. So then uh, I would say the, the first thing that comes to my mind in your top three is our work on the relationship between the gender pay gap and um, wage structure, which did uh, mark a, a kind of return to c- collaboration uh, in the um, late 80s and early 90s. And um, that work 
uh, I think highlighted um, a dimension, a causal factor that at that time had not been greatly noted or systematically studied. And basically, um, we took a lot of inspiration from uh, Chin Hee Jun, uh, Brooks Pierce, and uh, Kevin Murphy's work on uh, inequality and its relation to the race gap in the U.S., but we applied it in an international context where when we first started working on it, and even with my textbook, I hadn't fully noticed this, that um, the U.S. had actually a relatively large gender pay gap compared to other countries. And the conventional factors that you would think about mainly human capital differences between men and women and differences in treatment, discrimination, wouldn't seem at face value to account for that. And so uh, drawing on Larry's work, he's always been interested in wage structure and the experiment of um, large differences across countries, and especially relative to the U.S., in the larger role that unions play in pay setting in these other countries, which has the effect of bringing up the bottom of the wage distribution and uh, women are disproportionately located there. So there, the gender pay gap is narrowed in countries where unions uh, are more important and wage inequality is uh, narrower. Uh, And uh, the other two? Okay, so I would say... Actually, I think that our work on turnover was really pretty important. Uh, We looked at layoffs, but especially at quits. And at that time, I think there was a broad view in the economics profession that uh, women were uh, principally, or even if they worked in the labor market, principally oriented towards home, and that they had very high uh, turnover rates. And first of all, we found that their turnover rates were not all that much higher than males, uh, although they were higher, but that um, the gender difference could be accounted for by individual characteristics and the quality of the job, uh, the the pay and advancement opportunities um, afforded to it. And actually that work was uh, confirmed in a number of uh, later studies, although people at first were a little uh, reluctant um, to accept it. Uh, I mean, the idea that it wasn't all on the supply side. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. Uh, I can understand how a lot of, a lot of several other economists have mentioned situations where uh, they didn't get immediate acceptance of things that seemed to be out of, uh, that were, well, that, that weren't things that were documented, just things people thought, kind of like in the air. And you'd bring along some data and suddenly it's hard for people to get rid of those old thoughts. Exactly. And I think that's very important for young people to bear in mind. Larry, do you want to add a third thing? Yeah. Well, um, one of our findings is maybe related to the turnover finding, but we have a paper on uh, men's and women's labor supply elasticities. And 30 or 40 years ago, it was commonly believed that women had a much higher labor supply elasticity to the economy. And what we found was that by the time we got to the 2000s, the differences in labor supply elasticities between men and women had become much, much smaller as women were were becoming much more attached 
to the uh, to the labor market, and we felt that one implication of that um, reduction in in labor supply elasticity was uh, one implication was that tax rates now have uh, we believe a much smaller impact on labor supply than um, uh, than used to be the case uh, 30 or 40 years ago. Um, we also sort of found it was ironic. I mean, in the, in the days when supply side economics was was very big, it was primarily women's labor supply that was being affected by, <laughs> you know, supply side policies. Um, but nowadays, it's it's much less uh, much less affected. And I guess I'd also add that in our work on the gender gap in the United States, we uh, found that although you know women. Uh, relative wages rose dramatically in the 1980s, but they were actually swimming against a tide of rising overall wage inequality, which, as Fran said, tends to um, reduce the relative wages of people at the bottom of the distribution. So the gains that women actually made in the 1980s were even more impressive than simply looking at the the gender uh, the gender pay gap it, and it obviously also means that family income inequality has not hasn't gotten worse than and than it could have uh, if that hadn't happened so when you put the put the two together th- those are all interesting what do you, I'm curious what you think about the future of issues about uh, gender and pay. It, it seems as if, even though, as you note, there's been a lot of progress, it still seems as if there's a terrific amount of concern and even economic uh, unrest, you might say. Uh, the Me Too movement is one example, but there are other things too. I'm curious what you think about the future of all this. I'd make a couple of points about that. Um, I think in economics, we have a bit of a tendency to focus on the supply side. And I do think there's a very important supply side dimension to the gender pay gap and very interesting recent work that targets the time when um, women have children as exacerbating uh, the gender pay gap. So, um, and, and I, can I circle around to one more joint piece of work? Well, yeah. And of course, you have children yourself. We do. <laughs> yeah. We do. And, and, and one of them's an economist, so we must have done something right or something wrong. However you put so um, one interesting sort of background to the supply side, and, and I do want to get to the demand side as well, um, is that in the 1990s, the U.S. had one of the highest female labor force participation rates. And in fairly recent work, Larry and I showed that the U.S. progressively lost its position. And now among economically advanced countries, we have one of the lower rates. And essentially, our work suggests that uh, work-family policy plays a role in this. And so um, even when things are on the supply side, there's important policy implications. And I do think we have to do more. And particularly um, about childcare, because um, basically uh, in the U.S. you're kind of on your own. There are some important subsidies and programs, and this all really worsened uh, during COVID. So we have a shortage of um, labor in this area and steeply rising prices. On the other side, I do want to make the point that 
Discrimination probably pay, plays a smaller role than it did in the past, but any conventional analysis you do shows a residual gap that's potentially due to discrimination or can re- reflect other factors. And moreover, there's a great deal now of uh, experimental evidence that discrimination plays a role. What, I, I'm curious now that you bring it up. Uh, you had children too. Uh, and of course, one of the reasons that this becomes an issue for families is because there seems to be a presumption typically that, and that was certainly true in my own household, that the the primary caregiver or the person responsible for the primary caregiving is often the woman. Larry, were, were you, a, did you do a lot of caregiving in your house? Um, yes, I, yes, I did. We, um, I think we split what was going on in the house 50, 50, and we've had some very, very good childcare centers. One of them associated with the university of Illinois, which, which helped a lot, but we, uh, I believe, and Fran can speak for her end, but I I perceive that we really did share a lot. And uh, Fran mentioned our turnover paper, and we were writing that paper when our son was about three months old. And so we would find ourselves up in the middle of the night at 3 a.m. There's no way to go back to sleep. So we'd say, you know... Maybe maybe we should maybe we should add another variable to the model. So we were actually we were actually getting getting work done at a time when we would have been completely useless um, otherwise. So right? actually, Larry's showing that it can be efficient <laughs> to share work. But I want to really say yes. Uh, I'm not a superwoman. I'm just an ordinary human, and I'm sitting here today because we split everything. And one funny story about that is our first, our son did not sleep very well. And uh, one time we were looking down at him uh, lying on the bed and Larry says, I, I think this is going to be the first baby to ruin two careers. <laughs> um, I, I wanted to add something about the future. And, and that is that over the last, I don't know, 20 years or so, women in the U.S. have become more highly educated than men. And that difference is kind of filtering its way through the labor force as the younger, more highly educated women are, their cohorts are aging. And so uh, I think there's probably room for further reductions in the, in the, just the raw gender pay gap in the United States. And of course, it's still in the United States, the gender pay gap is still larger than it is in a number of uh, of northern, especially northern European countries, and so even though it has the gender gap, the raw gap has kind of stagnated at about twenty percentage points in the U.S. I think there is room for further reductions. Well, thank you. This has been uh, we're coming to the end of our podcast, and I I want to thank you both. Uh, I, I'm just curious about one more thing uh, before we before we uh, finish. And that is, do you, uh, this two-body problem is, uh, uh, the graduate students call it that. I think undergraduates probably have similar problems of uh, two people that have fairly specialized skills uh, trying to find work in the same area. What do you, do you have advice for people that are interested in this problem, solving it? Well, um, as Larry said, we had good planning and didn't face it in our first job. And we 
enjoy being in the same place and we enjoy working together. So we really were not going, and we had a good job. We weren't going to move uh, unless there was another uh, good offer for two. But I um, have agonized through it with a number of students. And it is an extremely difficult problem. I, I, I just want to say that, um, and then, and there's all kinds of questions. When should you reveal it? And, you know, et cetera. Well, what I want to say is it can be solved. It's important to solve. I per- it, it depends on your own values. I mean, there's more and more people are actually not in the same place, but if you enjoy being in the same place, remember there's more to life than one person getting their absolutely top job at the enormous cost of another person or at the cost of uh, separation. And lean on your uh, advisors and all the networks that exist now to mentor and assist people as you try to navigate this issue. And I would just give advice to uh, university administrations to place a priority on helping to subsidize the hiring of academic couples. In, uh, often that can make the difference. I suppose, you know, I'm at Cornell, so we are isolated. Uh, and so we actually really need the assistance of the central administration. And it, they, the administration can make decisions that benefit the university as a whole. That's great. Uh, well, thanks so much. Our guests today have been... Fran Blau and Larry Kahn, both professors of economics and labor and industrial relations at Cornell University. Please join us again for the next episode of The Work Goes On, an oral history of industrial relations and labor economics from the industrial relations section at Princeton University. I'm your host, Orly Ashenfelder. Thanks for listening. The Work Goes On is a production from the industrial relations section at Princeton University. For more information on our people, research, events, and programming, visit our website, irs.princeton.edu.